Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. It's Friday the 13th, and I'm drinking Zevia. Should one really drink alcohol on Friday the 13th? No matter. Here's Paul Jacob. I wanted to mention all of the pieces just briefly, but talk primarily about playing with fire, which is about uh, just in the last month what has happened in terms of Chinese threats and the rest of the world realizing these people are threatening us uh, and maybe we ought to respond. And and so there's been a lot happening on that front, especially with Japan. You know, every day at thisiscommonsense.org, we have uh, a thought and a today in history, basically. And and we had two thoughts this week that I thought were uh, just too good not to mention. And uh, one is Clarence Darrow, uh, who was a great kind of civil libertarian and and uh, easy to forget about, uh, but but uh, said you can. I was going to go on and on about him, but I won't. You can only protect your liberties in this world by protecting the other man's freedom. You can only be free if I am free. Recognizing that I'm. I'm fine with everybody being free. No, that's an old idea. And that's been stated by a number of people that have been included in the thoughts. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said this, uh, and Herbert Spencer said this. So if you want two philosophers sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum saying the same thing, well, you got it there. But this is Clarence Darrow, who most people should know of as, as a very famous uh, lawyer, a defensive lawyer. Yes. A defense lawyer, uh, famous for the Leopold and Loeb murder case. Yes. Uh, and also was a committed anti, um, he was against capital punishment. Was it Clarence Darrow in the Scopes trial? Yes. Okay. I thought it was. I thought it was. Yeah. That wasn't his shining moment, though, I don't think. That, no. The more, I, the more I read about the Scopes trial, I think that was kind of botched. So. I have not read. I've, I've, I've seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a that's a very a very fictional movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, and, uh, yes. Uh, uh, isn't that the one? Uh, that's the one with uh, Spencer Tracy and and uh, yes, he plays the Clarence Darrow character. Yes, that's right. And uh, and I forget who the old guy who plays the uh, prosecuting oh, attorney. He, his name's uh, on the tip of my tongue, though. He was uh, who's the guy? Uh, Brian. It was uh, William Jennings Bryan was the yes. character was based on in the movies. Yes. And yes. that was the, the, those were who were paired off. And the hero anti-hero in the movie is the H.L. Mencken character. Yes. Uh, Played by singing in the rain. Uh, what's the guy's name? Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly. He steals the show. Yeah. yeah. He is a great performance by Gene Kelly in yeah. that movie. Hey, there's another one I wanted to bring up. A much more recent quote. From Elon Musk, who I love and hate occasionally, is there a conspiracy theory about Twitter that turned? <laughs> I'll have to do this. <laughs> All right, from the top, take two. <laughs> is there a conspiracy? It's, just, it's like in huge letters right in front of my face. I just I never really quite learned to read. Is there a conspiracy theory about Twitter that didn't turn out to be true? He asks. So far, they've all turned out to be true, if not more true than people thought. 
And for for you, Tim, and uh, your fellow conspiratorialists uh, who are <laughs> seem to be right so much more of the time than uh, than than we would like. Uh, that 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 quotes for you, but of course, uh, it's. It is the sort of thing that if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And if Twitter is colluding with the government to silence people and violate their free speech rights, um, is that, you know, if nobody talks about it, does it kind of go away or at least go away as something we can complain about? It doesn't go away. It You would think. If you can get away with it, you double down. And we wouldn't know about this. If Elon hadn't bought Twitter, most of this stuff would not be known. It would merely be suspected, and we'd be called conspiracy theorists for suspecting yeah. it. And yeah. that's literally what they would say, is you're a conspiracy theorist. And it's just not true. And it turned out to be all true in the sense that government was involved. And And, and I have to say, I thought government was involved the whole time. But after hearing and reading, I, I'm, I was surprised that they were as deeply involved as they yeah, were. Quite deeply involved. There's lots yes. of players, lots of employees, government payments. We've talked so many times about money changing hands here. And, you know, there's all kinds of other things like threats and, you know, government's kind of powerful. So, so there's all kinds of ways for government to influence you. But when money's changing hands, you know, that used to be something that the media was concerned about, that that other people on the left were concerned about, not so much anymore. Well, here it's leftists who were involved in the company. And uh, though it looks like many Twitter executives objected to aspects of the of, of the government intrusion early on, they got on board pretty fast and they had a lot of employees uh, well, it was the new hires too, and the new investors, and they were gung ho for the the uh, the amount of control. Because you know, if you're if you're a partisan, if you want to accomplish things in politics, and then you can get a sneaky way to accomplish your ends, I mean, it's really hard to resist that, right? Right, right. Well, they've they've kind of bragged about it when it included the earned media, mainstream media folks. They they were not bragging so much about Twitter. We had to we had to get you know get access before I think people were able to really fully see that. I wanted to mention the the scripts this week on Monday we had the demand for term limits, which I just thought it was interesting that as we as as you know we're get a new Congress in the the twenty. Uh, mostly Freedom Caucus, I think 19 of them were Freedom Caucus, you know, was able to exert some influence at a critical juncture. We can agree or disagree whether that was a good thing, but so often it was played up in the media as, well, what are they really, this is just chaos and fighting or whatever. And and what I always want to know anytime I see a protest uh, and that goes for politicians doing stuff that really turns out to just be protesting and gumming up the works until they can get some recognition in the same way, really, that protesters on the street are maybe they're going to block some traffic or they're going to do something that would, you know, just being there and yelling and chanting after a while, you might kind of go, OK, is there some way we could meet in the middle here? And uh 
And what did they ask for? They asked for a vote for term limits. Now, they asked also balanced budget and some border stuff. And it is not like term limits was the only thing. But it strikes me that this issue that the mainstream media is not interested in, they're interested in almost any reform issue, but not this one that has 80% of the American people behind it, and that cuts against incumbent imperial Washington. And uh, and I just think we should remember that this is and, and we're going to remember it because there's going to be a vote. Uh, I got a, something from U.S. term limits. I'm on the board, but I got an email saying, hey, uh, you might want to write your congressman. Uh, and I don't usually advise that. But if you've got the time, why not bug them now on this? And the interesting thing is that this is going to be a vote early. They'll all figure I can, you know, it won't be that big a deal. Nobody thinks it's going to pass. The media won't play it up. But I can tell you if I, and I'm talking about Paul Jacob, and there are other Paul Jacobs out there with different names, hopefully, uh, who might do political stuff. If I'm coming after you, I'm going to use term limits. And and by golly, in, in 2024, that vote against term limits could sure matter in a general election or in a primary election. So uh, so I think this is great stuff. And I talked too long about that because I was just going to zoom through these. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, that the, the second uh, Tuesday's piece was voting for audits. And of course, we have a Congress that voted to, to let's add 87,000 IRS agents. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking exactly. And the IRS has been sort of underfunded. That's what we keep hearing from the establishment. It might be because there are people like me who kind of think, okay, that's good. That's good. But here's the, the kicker that came out and that we brought to people. And that is, who are they taxing? Who are they auditing? They're auditing the poor. The poorest taxpayers, the, the most likely to get audited are the people who are claiming the earned income tax credit. And uh, I think my, the first time I ever filed taxes, I think I got the earned income tax credit. Uh, boy, that was uh, those were tough times. And uh, and we have this tax credit out there, and then we're going to go after these people. And of course, I'm sure there's a certain amount of fraud, and I'm against fraud, whether you're poor or rich or middle income, or it's fraud. But isn't it interesting that they, they're always going to get the rich, guys. They never get them. It's like Charlie Brown kicking the football. Kick the football. We're going to get the rich, guys. And it's pulled out every time. And who gets hit? It's the poor and the middle class. And one reason this happens is that these things are not easy to figure. The taxes are not easy to figure just generally. They're complicated messes. Everything's pointing each other's, oh, it's, oh, it's a mess. And I like just a flat tax. And I like the flat tax because I want to pay the exact same percentage to defend my property and have access to the courts that Bill Gates or Elon Musk or any millionaire, multimillionaire, billionaire, zillionaire, gillionaire, I want to pay the same percentage on my income that they're paying on their income. Now, I'd like that to be zero, 
frankly, and us to find other ways like sales tax. You know, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. But I love the flat tax because it puts me on the same level as everyone else. And I know everyone wants the, the rich to pay everything. But by golly, I want my level of control. And I know, and if you think about it, you'll realize it's true that the people who pay the bills have outsized amount of influence on how things are done. I'm going to just zoom past the next two <laughs> scripts, which were scripts and commentaries. Commission by omission. There's a woman who publishes the London Terry Times in New Hampshire who's facing prison time, fines, because a clear ad in the newspaper didn't have political advertisement written next to it. Read it. Find out more about how lunatic our, our society is. Regulatory miasma. Yeah, miasma. Uh, which is uh, basically about this insanity with we're going to ban or not ban or, you know, who, who knows what crazy thing will come out next to the government. But we're talking they're talking about banning uh, uh, gas stoves. And of course, you know, many of us have lived with gas stoves. Many people still do live with gas stoves. And and uh, and, and part of it is you had this this kind of round robin of uh, um, oh my goodness, they're trying to ban gas stoves. No, we're not. This is a big conspiracy theory. And then of course the evidence comes out that yes, there are all kinds of people trying to ban gas stoves. And and this is another case of hey, this will be better for people, so let's just mandate it. And now someone goes to get a stove, and the person who says, how much is it? Let me write you a check, doesn't really see any problem. Hey, this is great. This is better. But the person who goes, oh, my goodness, we can't afford a stove because now we can't get the cheaper one that, you know, and, and of course, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV, but but I think that there's some a lot of the push behind this is going to cause people to have asthma and other problems is really questionably related to gas stoves and more related to poor people are more apt to have a gas stove. They're also more apt to live in areas where there's smoking, there's other stuff, there's environmental hazards. It's it's a it's a long list. You know, I hate to break it to people because I've seen through all of these different problems. And being wealthy is better than being poor on. It seems like on every single scale, every single scale. So it behooves us to try to try to not be poor and to be rich and to remove barriers from people so that they might be able to get rich too. And then they might decide their own thing. It could be that deciding what you're going to do about problems instead of being needy and, and require, requiring interference or intervention from, from others, that alone may account for better outcomes. Who knew? And the, the fun part of that story was actually the, the very end where it, after all the fall they're all about the you know the precise nature of how the scandal you know got right. you know on the flimsy grounds on which it was based and then 
the governor of New York decides, yeah, well, he wants to ban stoves. <laughs> it's just so it's just so perfectly wonderful. Uh, Especially, I think you probably share my uh, disdain for the governor of New York, but Hochul, yes. What I wanted to talk about uh, today was Friday's piece, today's piece, Playing With Fire, which was uh, basically about China and about the response to China, really mostly about Japan. And I hear all the time, I'm reading all the time about what's going on in Southeast Asia and really beyond that, because I mentioned in this piece, of course, that it's not just Southeast Asia, it's not just Japan and Korea and Taiwan and the Philippines and Vietnam, uh, all of which have complained about Chinese coercion and threats, uh, most notably Taiwan, um, but all of them. It's also India, where there were 20 Indians killed in 2020 in a clash without any guns. These were like people beaten to death, five Chinese soldiers beaten to death. Uh, in the Himalayas, there's a 2,000 plus mile border there, and there were just different problems recently that uh, luckily de-escalated and nobody was killed, but um, there's a real problem in the, the Indian government saying there's, you know, there are Chinese people building stuff, doing stuff on 38,000 acres uh, that are ours. And so this is not, you know, when people say, well, you know, they, they claim Taiwan. Well, you know, they've claimed Tibet and they've claimed that the Uyghurs to do with what they will, genocidal maniacs that they are. And, uh, and this is not the Chinese people. These are specific Chinese people called the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinazis. That's, that's who's doing this, not, not every Chinese person, because they're not doing it. They're having it done to them. So we, we have this threat, and the world, it seems to be, is waking up. Now, in just the last month, you had the, you had the, the near collision in the South China Sea, U.S. airplane in over international waters, intercepted by a Chinese plane. This is it, this isn't the only time it's happened. One of the closest incidents. Um, but would that have been war, or what would happen if that were to happen? China's going to say, "Well, this is our we we own the South China Sea." I mean, it'd be like India going, "Hey, the Indian Ocean, that's ours." You know, no, that's not quite how it works. And and so what do you do? Well, let's look at what folks are doing. And the most important country in that area, because it's the third largest economy in the world, is Japan. And Japan has, since World War II, basically said, you know, we don't want any uh, offensive military force. We're looking totally for defense. Um, and they have changed dramatically. One, they have been very specific that they view any attack on Taiwan as an existential threat against Japan. If you look at a map, you're going to see how close they are. There's actually the, the southwestern islands coming down from the Japanese island uh, islands are closer to Taiwan than Taiwan is to China. 
across the Taiwan Strait, which is about the closest point. It's about 80 miles. Uh, most of it's about 100 miles. So, you know, they Japan sees that as I mean, if you if if you if you're going to island hop, that's the first island you're going to hop on. And um, and they're they're looking to make major changes. They're doubling their military spending. They have made deals not only with the U.S., but now it came out yesterday. Uh, they they have a deal with the U.K. to that their troops can be U.K. troops can be in Japan. Japanese troops can be in the U.K. The alliances are becoming much closer. Um, and you've, you've seen it. We've mentioned it in different scripts and on this podcast. But uh, South, South Korea, Australia. Uh, other countries are are taking note and and making certain of their alliances. And as a as a libertarian, I you know kind of grew up with the idea of no entangling alliances, non-intervention. Let's stop being in all these alliances trying to run the world. And I'm still against the U.S. unilaterally as world policemen trying to run the world. But I think that the world, you know, we've gotten to a point where, and it's, it's a criticism I have sometimes of, of libertarians and libertarianism that the whole game is how do we get from where we are right now to a better place, not to the mythical city on the hill, but to a better real place so that we can actually go. And, and, when I look at that, I think, well, right now, if if I were president of the United States, I wouldn't cancel NATO, my my membership in NATO, our membership, whatever. <laughs> have you gotten your card? Because I haven't gotten my membership card. I think they sent it somewhere in Washington and they're holding it. But anyway, I I want there to be peace and I want free people to be able to stay free. And so I look at what's happening in Asia and I think, well, we could run away and, and nobody can. And look, we don't owe any of any of those folks our lives. So I, when I say run away, I don't mean that to sound like, oh, well, you chicken, you know, look, you got to decide what you're going to live and die for. And and that's the way it is. So and that that's everybody's right. But at the same time, I look at it and I think. There's no way to have promised we're going to be there to have your back and then run away at this point because this isn't, you know, this isn't Grenada calling, threatening us. You know, this isn't this isn't Iraq. This isn't Afghanistan. This is Southeast Asia. This is China with 1.4 billion people and a bunch of nukes and a bunch of the world's largest navy. And one of the things I mentioned in this piece, because so much, um, it's a little stream of consciousness, but but uh, so much of, of the propaganda out there is Chinese propaganda to say, we have the military, you could never stop us from taking Taiwan. And of course, any logical person realizes if we couldn't stop them from taking Taiwan, they would have taken Taiwan. So... We can stop them. We have stopped them. And then not just we, the Taiwanese are a real force. This is not some pipsqueak, 
country that's like they're number 21 in the world. They're 24 million people and they're number 21 in GDP. I mean, they they're a heck of a lot wealthier in Taiwan than they are in China. And uh, and they have a, a military and they I mean, it's a cohesive society. It's the best ally we will have uh, been with since World War II uh, in terms of if, if something did come. But, but so much of it, I think the average person, the reason I wrote this piece today, Playing With Fire, which ended basically by saying, hopefully we're not playing. That China, because Xi Jinping, and they've said it numerous times, anybody, any foreign country that goes to visit and talk to Taiwan or, or deal with Taiwan as if it's an independent country, which of course it is, they're playing with fire. Well, the world is starting to step up and say, you know what? We are, except we're not playing. And I think as, as I, I could say as an American citizen, but as a person on the planet, that's where I am. And that's where I want every country that's got a military, you know, a, a spare tank or missile or soldier I want them to be, we are standing up to this threat and we're not playing with fire. We recognize there's fire here and there's danger. We ain't playing. We're serious and we're going to respond. And, you know, you, you never know, you know, there are different lessons. The lessons of World War One, it seems to me, which are be careful about alliances, uh, are almost the opposite of the lessons of World War II, which is maybe you need to use these alliances to clamp down a little sooner. But I, I think our only hope not to have World War III is for China to decide, no, the West, this, this got out of hand. Our drive to take Taiwan and to take much of the world and to dictate what people can say, not only in our country, in a totalitarian, evil, tyrannical way, but all over the world, that that whole push has woken up the world and we can't hold down. The fact that the third largest economy is now on the side of the first largest economy, and they're working closely together to defend this area of the world. And if you look at who else is there, well, number four, I've got my little notes over here. Taiwan, uh, President Tsai uh, Ing-wen this week said, called on Germany, because there were German legislators who visited Taiwan, called on Germany to step up and say, yes, we're going to be involved in defending peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. So they're calling on this alliance to happen. And of course, Germany is the number four uh, country in GDP in the world. And if you look at that list, uh, number five, I think, is India, and six is uh, the UK, which of course is now working with Japan. The truth is the, the wealth and power of generally free people is enough to back off China. And, um, and that's, that's why I've become one heck of a hawk. I mean, I've just never been a hawk, but I, I just don't think, I mean, I, I'm less worried about whatever label than the idea that we're going to like slide into World War III 
as a whimper into World War III against this 1.4 billion people, person, you know, uh, country that thinks let's bully everybody all the time. And that's the the path. I had a, I, I posted this at, at uh, on my personal page at Facebook and a, a guy uh, said, you know, why do you call them Chinazis? Why not call them communists and so on? But their behavior, and of course, I, I the, where I came up with that term was when I visited Hong Kong in 2019, and the graffiti and and the conversation. That's 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 what they called them. Uh, <clears throat> and I thought that fits because it's an ethno state. It has concentration camps for the Uyghurs. I mean, it's like if you missed anything, there the symbolism is there. And, and of course, that whole thing that China for years denied, they've had to come clean to an extent and say, oh, yes, well, we these camps we said we didn't have, we have them, but they're really nice. That's why we lied to you about them. It, this is a uh, it's a heck of a of a time in history, I think. And, and so I'm I'm for I'm a hawk and I am for the United States of America realizing that whether you like it or not, China is at war with uh, freedom, our freedom, as well as that of people all over the world, especially in Southeast Asia. And um, and I'm for fighting them. And, and doesn't have to be with a club. But if it does have to be with a club, with a club. Okay. You haven't convinced me yet, uh, I guess. Mainly not because I don't see China as a threat, but because I think that in the West, most of the elites are on board with the China program. So I think our enemies are real close to home. I think the Democratic Party is on board with the Chinification of America. I think Klaus Schwab and all that nonsense about the Great Reset is in the same order. Yes. And I, and, I, and I think that the only way we can make sure that China doesn't, you know, bulge out and conquer a lot of stuff is the resistance they need to see is us resisting to their comrades close to home here. So I think that the way to make sure primarily is that we oust the evil globalists in Europe and America. And that's where the problem in Australia, which is actually, I think, really dangerous now. Australia has become a bad place. And that, and, and largely also because of that very strange, you know, chink in the whole story, which is COVID, right? The yes. whole yes. coronavirus, that, that, that really threw the West in a loop and I don't see what's recovering. I think America and Europe and all the West is as a real problem. And it highlighted, I think, a problem. And of course, for a lot of us, it highlighted the problem that there are all these free people who may not do what we tell them to when we tell them and ask how high to jump. And then for some of the rest of us, it showed that our society could, you know, we they've been saying fascist and all this about Trump for forever. And then he's the head of the government and the government can just shut everything down. And nobody says anything except to bitch and moan about their neighbor who maybe their mask wasn't on the right way or they went. It, it just we have been consistently, though, I think, making that point and we need to look for ways to make it more 
that the this is not the red, white, and blue U.S. versus the red commie China. This is China with a surveillance Nazi state that is vicious versus in some ways the U.S., which let's realize I'm reading uh, Josh, Josh Rogan's book. He's a columnist with the Washington Post. He wrote a book called Chaos Under Heaven, and it's about the Trump administration. But of course, it, it and, and relationship with Xi Jinping and China and, and Taiwan and so on. And what he says, I mean, it's all anti-Trump even though he acknowledges that the policy <laughs> got a whole lot better, even though it was mangled and messed up. And I'm willing to believe it was mangled and messed up. But better, po good policy or better policy mangled and messed up is better than worse policy delivered in a beautiful wrapper. And the Obama administration, it was like, how high? How high should we jump? We are, we are, submissive to China. We love you guys. We want you to take over the world. And that's not smart. And, and, and so the elite in America had no problem with China until Donald Trump, bless his heart, whether it was because he's a brilliant guy and understood instinctively and <laughs> boom, or because he just wanted to pick a fight with Xi Jinping, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Maybe it was divine intervention, uh, which I increasingly think it was. Um, he blew it up. And after that, the public is in a different place. And, and like you said, COVID sure helped blow it up. Because we even saw, we saw our elite make every excuse for China. And yet it starts to seep out and smart people, you know, you can you can lie to them and tell them what they see right in front of their face isn't really there, but they don't believe you. Yeah, so that's where I think the the real interesting warfare is going to take place is, you know, with our Chinese sympathizers in the West and whether we can rein them in somehow. And I think this is a real big problem. And, uh, and, and so in that sense, I'm pretty much on board with your you're and well, I'm, I'm anti-Chinese. I'm anti I'm anti the CCP. I mean, and I do think right. Nazi is a great term. Uh, and I don't like the objections to it very much because it's it's so apt because they run their businesses like the Nazis ran their business. Yes. And uh, yes. Like, you know, was it uh, uh, Farben and the major corporations in, in Nazi Germany? I mean, this is the more you read about this stuff, it is weird. Uh, this is this is not like normal capitalism. But it is an awful lot like what some people in the towards the left say governments should, you know, how government and business should relate to each other is that governments and, uh, you know, activist members of the elites run corporations according to some ideology. Yeah. Boy, profit looks good. For profit business looks better and better all the time if we just stop getting these ideologues in power in corporations and so forth. So that's where I'm at. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to live to fight another week, but uh, but uh, Japan's my uh, my hero of the week. They have stepped up big, and uh, and it's you know I, I salute them for for you know people. You think about Japan's rep as you know they were kind of Nazi like too, and uh, oh. whoa, 
World War II, they were awful. Just unbelievable. You know, read the rape of Nan King and things like that. It's just unbelievable. Yet, isn't it funny how easily their people adapted to peace and relative freedom? It was easy. It seems like they, and they were very productive. And today they're stepping up in a way that is, that I don't think, you know, Japan's not looking, they're not getting back in to see, oh, what territories can we take over? They're scared. They're scared about their existence. And I don't want, you know, the Japanese, that's a lot of people who are free, I don't want them to cower under under China. 24 million in, in Taiwan, it, it's arguably that went from like Chiang Kai-shek's totalitarianism to freedom. Gosh, you can't let that be reversed. And this is the this is basically the first generation of Taiwanese that lived in freedom their whole lives. Let's let them live it out in the same way that you're right we've got to do something about the United States of America because all their fates are very much connected to ours. And ours is connected to being free, not having our elite shove the Chinese, the Chinazi model of a surveillance police state on us. And the truth is, I think the right and left among the public is scared of that. And I think they're both right to be scared of it. Although the the connection with the corporations in America and the, the, you know, convergence of these powerful forces has been on the left. Yeah. Though we have to remember when it comes to surveillance states, if it weren't for the right in America, there wouldn't be one in America. The right is the one who ushered in the Patriot Act and all this nonsense after 9-11-2001. And we are living with the consequences of that to a great deal. Uh, and uh, and I think that uh, until, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons those 20 people, 20 uh, uh, Freedom Caucus members or whatever in the House who made sure to get concessions from the establishmentarian McCarthy, uh, that was the good thing. Because if, if he, you know, amazingly, if he actually does something and bites back at the, the powers, uh, that'll be good. Yeah, but, uh, it's those powers, you know, the establishment Republicans who are in some sense as bad as the re- establishment Democrats. Uh, and it, because <laughs> Trump wasn't an establishment Republican. And that was the, one of the good things about him. And and uh, McCarthy got on board with Trump. And I hope that he gets on board with the uh, Freedom Caucus members of the Congress, because I hope they can push back on our globalists and our tyrants and our love of surveillance state. You know, I'll tell you, in all of that, it's having tried to work Congress a little bit on term term limits of all things. uh, That's a tough place. And it's hard to imagine them doing the right thing on almost anything without the public being awake and pushing them in that direction. Yeah. So... Until next week. Do that. Yeah. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Yes, good night. (laughs) Thanks. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on behalf of Paul Jacob, I thank you for joining us for this week in Common Sense. 
which you can find on Rumble, SoundCloud, and always at thisiscommonsense.org. Thanks.